Ladies, at Essentia Health, you're not just a patient. You're a partner in your healthcare journey. We'll get to the heart of your health questions, even the ones you're embarrassed to ask. We'll find solutions to fit your unique needs and lifestyle, because here, we're in it together. Feel confident in your care and in yourself. Schedule a women's health appointment with an Essentia Health provider today. Click the banner to learn more. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast was released to premium subscribers on February 9th, so almost one week ago. If you're upset at missing this opportunity, don't be. You can easily become a premium subscriber by signing up at the website contrarianpod.substack.com or, as mentioned in the intro, contrarian.supercast.tech. The prices are exactly the same at each service. They start around $9.99 a month, but if you sign up for a year, you get a discount. There are a number of benefits, not just getting the podcast earlier than everybody else, but you also get it without any of these ads or annoying announcements, and you also get a daily podcast every morning a shorter one featuring just me that kicks off the market day and you'll get that around 7 a.m. and highlighting just the, the data releases and earnings and other things that are moving markets for the day ahead. You don't want to miss that. You don't want to miss these episodes. You don't want to get them later than anybody else. So sign up, contrarianpod.substack.com. See you there. Here with uh, Harold van der Linde, head of Asia Equity Strategy at HSBC in Hong Kong. Harold, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We're here because we're going to be talking about emerging markets and a couple of things with emerging markets that make this a good topic of discussion for from a contrarian perspective. One is that the track record these last really 10 years or more maybe since the financial crisis, emerging markets have kind of underperformed while they carry more risk, typically they haven't really produced any of the excess return, at least not in recent memory. You have a contrarian view, as I mentioned. So maybe we can just start, you talk about that, and then we'll take it from there. Oh, no, that's right. You are right if you say uh, have emerging markets in Asia, have they underperformed over the last 10 years? That is right. But in a sense, that's also not correct, because there is so many emerging markets. So yes, in Asia, for example, we got, and Asia is about two thirds of overall global emerging markets. So it's a predominant part of it, right? 
Yeah, there are markets that have moved in all sorts of different directions, and therefore they even each other out. And uh, on the margin, uh, they've just about underperformed the, the S&P 500. But if I would have said, listen, uh, take a look, for example, at India, over the last 10, 20 years, India has done about twice as good as the S&P 500. China is a bit more complex because there are arguably maybe five or six Chinese stock markets now. There's one in Shanghai, it's the biggest. You got Shenzhen. Most people would buy their Chinese stocks in Hong Kong. You can also buy ADRs in, in New York. Now, and there's just recently they opened up a stock market in Beijing, but that's so small, that's just so recent that we can, for the moment, put it aside. But yeah, these markets have moved in different directions. Uh, the, the ADRs, in particular last year, and most of them tech companies in the US, have not done very well. Mm-hmm. Some of them have moved to Hong Kong, therefore Hong Kong has not done so well either. That's the age here, the China proportion of what is listed in Hong Kong. But the Asia market has actually done pretty good. And Shenzhen, it's mostly tech companies, has over the last 20 years done probably well, about uh, one and a half times as good as the S&P 500. So again, it's all over the place. And this is, I think, really important in, in emerging markets of Asia that um, uh, don't just club them all together as one, but also because of the big variation in this asset class, if you're into kind of trading or switching between countries or looking at trading patterns, it's fantastic. You take India, for example, and, and China. Both are uh, running on different kinds of melodies and tunes, you could say. So when China is really hot, India might be doing okay, but might actually come down or vice versa. The correlation between the two is, is really low. So what you can do is to say, listen, I'll, 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 I'll switch in between. So if China is really bad, like last year, China is, if you think about the, uh, I'm talking, when I talk about China, I'm talking really about the Chinese stock list in Hong Kong. Um, a lot of them are tech companies. They have not done very well over the last calendar year. Now, but India did phenomenally well. Now, then you can say, oh, yeah, at some point in time, maybe I should I should take the reverse on here and and take money out of India and go to China. So that's mm-hmm. um, it's um, that's one way of playing this region. But yeah, there is no such thing as just Asia, you could say. Yeah, yeah, good point. And, and certainly the dichotomy between India and China is, is very real. If you look at the record, what do you make of the premise as far as the other? East Asian, you know, emerging economies, be it in the, you know, the Mekong region or in, in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, etc., that these are all kind of suppliers to China and therefore dependent on, on China. You hear that a lot, at least uh, here in the West. So what, what do you what do you think about that? Well, they are to a certain extent suppliers of, of products that go into supply chains in Asia. So that goes into China. Uh, Indonesia, for example, does a lot of coal, but uh, there's a lot of excitement there on, on uh, electric vehicle batteries for electric vehicles because Indonesia is chock full with nickel, and that's just the stuff that these uh, people need, right? So they're setting up uh, battery facilities in Indonesia these days. Um, but to a large extent, actually, a lot of the ASEAN, so I'm talking about Indonesia, Thailand, say Philippines, um, Malaysia, uh, Vietnam, we can clobber in there mm. as well. Um, yes, they, they fit into the Asian supply chains, but a lot of the stock markets are actually kind of domestic oriented. So mm. uh, local banks, local consumer companies, uh, companies that sell, uh, I don't know, cars and motorcycles or um, stuff like that, or food companies and clothing companies. Um, and that uh, creates a kind of a domestic thing to it. And, and this is important 
these markets are easily ignored. And if you if you sit on fifty billion dollars, right, and you're you're uh, you're, you're which I am not, by the way, but go on. Yeah, yeah. No, me neither. So yeah, I don't count me in my into that particular category. But if you sit on a lot of money, yeah, fifty billion dollars, and you move hundreds of million dollars around, then those markets are a little bit thin. But for the vast majority of of people that um, just invest maybe um, thousands or tens of thousands of dollars or whatever it is, but uh, not into the hundreds of millions. These markets are liquid enough. You can you can play them, and they're really interesting. Again, they they don't move in line with the U.S. or with China. They move to their own tune, and this is where the interesting thing comes from. It means that yeah, you can diversify buying something like Indonesia, just like India. Yeah, they they in a sense move in their own way. So if the U.S. has got a bad year, and chances are that Indonesia could actually be having a, a stellar year. That's very often happens. And, in particular, there's some really interesting changes taking place in some of these markets. As I said, we see, for example, money coming in for electric vehicle batteries. Indonesia is going to be, by the end of this decade, the fourth largest consumer market on the planet. After China, India, and the US, the Indonesian consumer will be the fourth largest biggest consumer. This is a country that has got 250 million people, and that's the size of the US, give or take. Um, that is growing fairly rapidly. And a lot of people are on that kind of income level now, whereby, yeah, they don't walk around or motorcycle around. It's cars and it's they start to travel and, um, yeah, a bit of luxury and stuff like that. So, they, they uh, yeah, they're reasonably well off. And that creates a big consumer market. Now, you can invest in these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and because these markets are really typical and have their own kind of nature, and trends and flavors and things like that. Uh, uh, yeah, they don't move in line with the U.S. as such. And uh, that, that's where the excitement comes from. Very interesting. And, and you mentioned Indonesia. I know you're pretty uh, little bullish about that. Talk to me about the opportunities within these com- within these countries now. Um, yeah. I know we can't mention individual stocks, and that's fine. But maybe we can just sectors or, yeah. Good. And, no. and then also how people would access them. Are these locally traded shares or are they ADRs or... Yeah. Well, let's start with that. Actually, you can buy locally traded shares, uh, mm-hmm. so that that's that's an easy way. And presumably, a lot of platforms will give you simply Indonesian access. Yeah. Were that for some reason not the case, there is actually an Indonesian uh, ADR that uh, trades in in the US, so you can do that. Um, and there's one or two companies, I believe, at top of my head that uh, from the ADR in the US as well. Uh, there's a, a telecommunication company, amongst others, that you can do it now. Indonesia is, is actually a good example of ASEAN. It's a big archipelago. A lot of the wealth is in, in one island, that is Java, that's really the heart of the, that country. Um, and if you go into the eastern parts of Indonesia, that is reasonably undeveloped to, to, uh, to a certain extent yet. Now, I used to live there in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, my wife is Indonesian. So if we would go to see uh, kind of her family lived in Jakarta as well, but kind of uh, her aunts and, 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 uh, and uncles who still lived in central Java, we would drive there. It, would, it could take us about seven hours to get there. But it was an, I, I, I did not like that trip. Um, small roads, lots of traffic, potholes in it. If it rains, the traffic doesn't move. Horrendous. If we would go from Jakarta now to the same place, it will probably be about half the time. The reason for it is very simple. They've built um, highways. Mm. You can actually take a train there now. So over the last 20 years or 30 years, it's a bit longer ago that I lived there, um, infrastructure is is improved a lot. Now, what does that mean? And uh, why is this of excitement if you're an investor? It means that factories 
can actually be in central Java. I actually have met people that have set up factories in central Java and shipped their goods out of Surabaya. 30 years ago, that was unheard of. You would have mm. your factory at Jakarta, close to the harbor in Jakarta, which was incredibly congested. So it's, it's easier to get around in Indonesia and easier to move your goods a little bit around as well. Well, what does that mean? That means that those people live in central Java. 30 years ago, there was no job for them because, well, if you wanted a factory job, you had to go to Jakarta. Now you can just stay at home and have a factory job over there. You, know, you make a bit more money. And what do you do? Well, you buy a motorcycle. And hey, five years later, you've made a bit more money. So you're going to have a bigger house or an extension to your house. You buy a car. Hey, uh, you make some money. You want to go travel. Indonesians either want to go to places like Hong Kong, Singapore, Europe, uh, the Netherlands. There's some... Uh, kind of historical relationships there, or they're Muslims, they want to go to Mecca for some point in time, it doesn't matter, though they travel to Bali. So they their spending patterns are changing. Mm. And that's slowly developing, slowly unfolding. And as I said, because you got 250 million people there, uh, it, it all adds up to a, a massive consumer market. Can you invest in this? Yes, you can invest in auto companies that, uh, that, that, that distribute cars and stuff for uh, normally for Japanese brands, motorcycles mm -hmm. as well. Banks, there's still mm -hmm. in ASEAN as well as in, Indo uh, in India, a lot of people who are underbanked, with that I mean either they don't have a bank account or if they have a bank account, they got like a little bit of money onto it, but you need to sell mortgages to these people or you're gonna do life insurance products. That is just developing. Uh, over the last couple of years, we've seen that. So you can buy banks that give you great exposure to that as well. Uh, all of that listed. And now there are tech companies listing that do local e-commerce and these sort of things. So there's actually plenty of yeah opportunity to buy individual stocks that give you exposure to those, uh, to those uh, yeah, the domestic <laughs> growth story. And it's not too linked to commodities and it's not just a, a major commodity supplier to China and elsewhere. It is a major commodity supplier, and uh, because uh, the world is struggling with the energy transition, yes, everybody says, well, we should have more wind and solar. Uh, we all agree on it, but it takes a bit of time to build up that capacity, and it comes with all sorts of other technical issues. So in the meantime, as we grow, we still need coal and oil and these sort of things. So coal prices have gone up, and Indonesia benefits from that. That is absolutely right. So they export oil, and that helps the rural uh, incomes probably over the next decade as well. But it, Indonesia needs to also understand that uh, maybe for the moment that's good business, but in 20 years' time, that might not be good business anymore, right? Mm. It's just that they just, in particular, Sumatra and other parts of Indonesia, chock full with coal so they can easily sell it. But what they are trying to do is to set up industries that are more processing industries. So instead of selling oil or, sorry, selling coal, yeah, you want uh, industries that maybe do uh, iron steel plates or whatever, or go further, right? And this comes in while they're trying to promote these electric vehicle battery mm. uh, plans to be established in, uh, in the archipelago there. Mm. Very interesting. And there is an exchange, uh, a Forex risk there, because the, the, the local currency is not, not pegged to the dollar, is it? No, so th th that is right. So the local yeah. currency moves independent of the dollar, you could say. That's not completely right. Of course, the dollar is always sure. something important, but it is not like other currencies where they very closely relay, move and follow the US dollar. That's not the case in Indonesia. And in the past, that has led to volatility. So mm. you, the funny thing is, as I said, it's a domestic-oriented market. So the earnings volatility is actually quite low, but it's actually the volatility of the market comes very often from the Forex market or mm -hmm. indirectly from the bond market. 
Um, normally, in, in this stage of the cycle, right, it's now early 2022, um, uh, the US is about to start raising interest rates, presumably, most people expect that now, um, that would be bad for an Indonesian currency. What is now interesting is that at the moment, this is not the issue, because that changes. In the past, the Indonesian rupee would be much weaker. But the, the thing is, because they're now setting up these electric vehicle battery uh, plants and these sort of things, yeah, money is coming in and that is supporting the currency. So there are some real changes. And because that stock market is getting bigger and some tech companies are coming in, yeah, people are pouring money into that. So that provides support to the uh, Indonesian currency. Um, they also did some other laws, uh, so-called omnibus law, which makes it easier to do business in the place. Again, it attracts um, yeah, foreign direct investments and that provides support to the currency. So hmm. that currency risk is for the moment, maybe not as uh, big. Interesting. What can you tell us about the political situation? I know it's very diverse, you know, all different islands, different religions, different ethnicities there. But uh, and uh, yeah, so what is but what politically, how is the situation there now? Is it stable? So Indonesia is a um, uh, the majority religion is is uh, Islam. Yeah. Um, it's a Muslim country, but large parts of Indonesia, particularly East Indonesia, are um, uh, Christian. Um, Bali, the islands where everybody goes for holidays, is Hindu. So it's uh, religiously extremely diverse. Yeah. Um, that creates a balance because we've seen movements in Indonesia whereby people said, oh, we need to follow, for example, Islam law or something like that. And then East Indonesia and Bali says, well, that's fine for you, but we, we, we're not going to do that. So we, uh, we're going to declare independence almost, right? Um, and, and of course, that's not what they want either. So in the end, it, it keeps all these things a little bit in check. There are Islamic parties, but... Interestingly, over the last 20 years, so Indonesia is a democracy, but mm-hmm. uh, over the last 20 years, when it became a democracy in, let's say, uh, the late 1990s, it hasn't really, people have, they're Muslim, but they don't vote for Muslim parties. They have voted for the secular parties to a large extent. And for the moment, there are no real elections coming up. It's uh, in two years' time. So politically, it's, it's relatively stable for, uh, for, uh, for the moment as it is. So, yeah. mm. Very interesting. Cool. All right, uh, Harold van der Linde, I want to take a quick break. There's uh, a chance to have their voices heard and uh, come back and ask you some more questions. Um, so let's do that now. If you are a premium subscriber, don't go anywhere. Don't touch the dial. You will not get the break. If you want to become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. It's not just Supercast, by the way. There is also a Substack. So if you have a Substack account, it probably makes sense for you to sign up there and that website is contrarianpod.substack.com. Prices and services are exactly the same at both websites. 
So whichever one you choose, it's the same thing. And prices start at $9.99 a month. A discount is available if you sign up for the year. Hope to see you there. Let's get back to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Harold with uh, Harold van der Linde. Um, if you'll forgive my my German pronunciation, I can't do the Dutch. But um, uh, head of Asia Equity Strategies at HSBC. You are based in Hong Kong. How does a, a Dutchman find himself in Hong Kong? Interesting. I'm sure you have an interesting backstory. And this is the segment of the show where we ask our guests about that and and just a little bit about themselves and how they got to be to this stage of your life. I know you've been in Asia for a while, as you alluded to. So yeah, tell us about that. So yeah, I'm Dutch. I, I studied economics in, in, in the Netherlands. This is in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I went backpacking in Asia. My first country was Indonesia. I loved the place, uh, learned the language. Eventually, I wrote my master's thesis there as well. Um, um, I had the luck, actually, that on my very first trip on a ferry between two islands in eastern Indonesia, there was a young girl. I was 20. She was seven. And this sounds really bad, but she was she was sick. So I gave her a, a medicine, a, a aspirin. And the parents came over and I got in touch with them and said, oh, she's sick. I gave her some medicine. Said, oh, OK, thank you very much. But I couldn't speak Indonesian. They couldn't speak English. Uh, when I left the ferry, um, maybe two hours later or something like that, um, I bumped into them again. They were picked up by family. They said, why don't you drive with us to wherever you want to go? And uh, they stayed in the hotel. Eventually, I stayed with them as well. They said, why don't you stay with us for a couple of days? And we, we started to chat a bit, despite the language issues. And um, eventually, I went on, traveled on my own. But months later, I arrived in Jakarta, where they lived. And um, they told me, when you're in Jakarta, stay at our place. So good, I did that. And I was planning to stay there maybe for, I don't know, three, four days. Turned out to be six months. And it was fantastic. Um, I learned the language. Uh, eventually, I decided to write my master thesis there, stayed with them again. So actually, in the early 90s, I stayed in Indonesia for extended periods in time. China was opening up. So yeah. that was after the Tiananmen Square incident in yeah. 89. So this is 91 or so that I, for the first time, went to China. Did the same, not stayed with a family, but learned Chinese. Um, traveled around, became a tour guide to finance my studies a bit. So, yeah, I was an extensive traveler. And... Um, I mean, the reason we do this podcast, I wrote this book about, about Asian stock markets, and these stories are in there, because actually what I didn't know at the time, that some of the experiences I had, for example, in Indonesia, how people live and shop, how they think about uh, yeah, spending and these sort of things, yeah, all of that comes back later on when you then start to um, look at investments in these markets and think about yeah, what, what kind of investment story works, and having that background really, really worked, right? Mm. So I lived in Indonesia a long time, eventually... Um, uh, finished my university in the Netherlands, never looked for a job in Europe, went straight to, back to Asia, worked in Indonesia. And then they, the, the bank I worked for uh, was a Swiss bank initially. They shuffled me around the region a bit, um, uh, China, Taiwan. And then uh, later with HBC, I ended up in, in, in Hong Kong. And now I look at the whole region, right? But mm-hmm. yeah, over the course of yeah, living there, you, um, you start to travel around. So I lived in Taiwan. I traveled often to Korea. India came up uh, very often, so I, I moved there reason, uh, quite often as well. Um, and so you start to yeah, get a bit of feel for these markets, for these economies, what happens in these places, how people differ, how they, uh, Indians, if they make, let's say somebody makes, uh, just making up a number, but let's say uh, 2,000 US dollars a month in India, and the same family earns $2,000 in China, the way they consume will be completely different. There are different priorities, different things they like. 
No, so if you see that and understand that, then you can understand, yeah, the, the growth potential for some of these companies quite often as well. Mm. Yeah, so you travel around the region quite extensively, and uh, before you know it, uh, yeah, that helps with setting uh, equity strategy. And before you know it, people ask me very often, what should I do with my money? And I thought, hey, there is no good book about people to understand how Asian stock markets work mm. and how they should invest. And I can't tell them buy this stock or that stock in a book, but I can tell them this is how these things work. A little bit what we spoke about earlier on with Indonesia and India, not singing to the tunes of China in a mm-hmm. sense, right? That stock markets moves, that doesn't impact some of the other markets. And um, so I decided to write it all up in, um, in a book. Hmm. That's amazing. What's the name of the book? And we'll link to that too in the show notes. It is um, Asia Stock Markets from the Ground Up. And then from the ground up means don't look at Asian stock markets from the top down um, in the sense of uh, what do their economies do? That's very often what you would do in the US. A lot of markets, yeah. what's the economy doing? Very often the economy doesn't have a big impact on these markets. Hmm. has an impact, but it doesn't mean if the economy is good that the market also will do good because the composition of these markets differs quite differently. Not always you have domestic exposure. There's a particular case in Taiwan and Korea, which are tech-heavy markets and so globally. What happens in the local economy is not so important. But from the ground up also means yeah, walking around in the region, being on the streets in Mumbai and eating street food or living in South Jakarta and uh, being there and eating what they call nasi uduk for, for breakfast or uh, traveling all over China and seeing how these people live there uh, from the ground up means, yeah, you're looking at all these markets uh, as if you are with your two feet down and in, uh, in, in somewhere in, in the middle of China. So, mm. so that's, that's the idea. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. Talk to me about how you you mentioned this, the different um, behavior of the consumers. So uh, demographics plays a major role here. So mm. uh, I'm going to make uh, look at China, Indonesia, and India. China is had a one-child policy. So mm-hmm. most families clearly have one child, right? China is aging. So the average Chinese is in their late 30s at the moment. Now, most of them would have had children that were born in the mid-20s. So these children are, say, 15 years now. So for the next five years in China... A lot of them see their children leaving. And then you are with the two of you. Uh, you're an empty nester. What is also unique in China is that women work, mm-hmm. uh, very often work. So you have a dual income situation. So in China, if you have a household where people make $2,000, first of all, you divide it by three people and you got probably two incomes. Now, maybe the wife doesn't make $2,000, but let's say $1,000, you got $3,000 to spend. With three people, that's $1,000 per person, right? So now people don't pay taxes, but this is just a, we don't have to go into the details of that, but that's how it roughly works. No, that's not bad. And you can, you can actually do a lot with that money. Uh, and the, so luxury spending is, is okay. Now we go to the other extreme. This is India. In India, a guy would make $2,000. His wife would not work. That is very uncommon in India. You don't have one child. You probably have two or three children. So let's take three. So you with five people, you got $2,000. So at the same income level, he can't go for luxury because he's got many more mouths to feed. So they have $2,000 divided by five is $400. That's substantially less than, than in, in China at the same income level. That's why you can't say, oh, this GDP per capita or this level of economic development, India will be almost where China is or India is now 20 years earlier than China. no. 
the household situation is completely different. Um, so he will spend much more on simply local goods. In addition to that, Indians have an urbanized. A vast majority of Indians still live outside the larger cities, and this is not the case in China. So companies, yeah, they can sell kind of more basic goods, but have to go more rural. So having distribution capabilities, channels, is much more important in India. In Indonesia, you could say it's a little bit in between. Women do work more there, but not as much as in China, but much more than in India. Uh, as we spoke about earlier on, distribution is a bit easier in, in Indonesia than in India, which is still very difficult, a bit like when I was there 20, 30 years ago. So, but the companies in India that can distribute deal with, with all the difficulties and there's all kinds of uh, local regulations very often. They are incredibly um, profitable. So uh, they can become, the, they are the most profitable companies in the region. So you can see out of this already that the household composition, how people spend, also their preferences. Uh, uh, um, Chinese like to travel, go uh, abroad. They have the means to do so. The Indonesians now as well, but they would spend much more on going, for example, to Mecca for a religious trip, which is important to them. If you can spend money on that, that's that's a first priority for a lot of them. And in Indians, would it would be a little bit different, but there's a lot of local travel. Uh, so... Yeah, understanding that, you can see already how spending patterns and how, what kind of goods people would buy, even at the same income level, would differ. Mm, that's fascinating. Are there any brands, U.S. Western brands or anything that you've noticed have made, made a major inroad maybe in Indonesia? I know Starbucks has been, and a lot of the Western ones have made done really well in, in China, mainland China especially. Um, and I believe that Disneyland in Shanghai is the biggest one in the world. Um, so yeah, is any, anything about that? Any anecdotes you can share there? Yeah, there's a couple of brands that have done very well. I mean, in China, you've mentioned a couple of them, right? But mm-hmm. uh, a lot of luxury brands, right. uh, some, of the, some of the French luxury brands have, have mm-hmm. done very good there. So that's something to look at. Um, and in, in Indonesia, uh, uh, Japanese car brands have, mm-hmm. have done uh, phenomenally well. But a lot of the luxury brands haven't looked at that. That will happen, over, I think, over the course of the next couple of years. Mm. That market is starting to become so big now that it's, it will be important for some of these key luxury brands to be a bit more prominent in a market like in uh, Indonesia. Um, um, uh, in India, actually, a, a lot of foreign brands have tried to come in but struggled. Right. Um, there's a, a large furniture company from Sweden that has tried to go in and is now in India, but it really took a long time to get in there. And as I said, uh, in India, you got a lot of regulations, local regulations, distribution problems, uh, getting stuff around. So, but the local companies have figured it out. They, they've done extremely well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of them are international, part of international food and beverage companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, um, yeah, and, and their Indian operations are just uh, probably the most profitable that they, mm-hmm. uh, that they have. Before we move on to other countries, last question about Indonesia, nothing not related to finance at all. Mm-hmm. Any favorite travel destinations? Don't say Bali, please. Um, that's the one part of Indonesia I've been. It's, it's lovely. It's great. But no, I'm no, assuming Bali most... It's lovely, it's great, but it's already on the map. Yeah. No, I, I think Indonesia is chock full with fantastic... Uh, travel destinations. I mean, if you're into culture and stuff like that, you go to Central Java, Yogyakarta. There's large temples there, and there's a lot to learn. If you say, mm, I like really exotic destinations like the Seychelles and the Maldives, but then mm. as it was 50 years ago, or maybe or 30 years ago, you go to Eastern Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you should type in something. Um, it's called Raja Empat, R-A-J-A, uh, Empat, E-M-P-A-T, 
type it into Google and you'll you'll be like, oh my God, this is fantastic. I need to go yeah. and see this. It's right. in Eastern Malaysia is really, really beautiful. Cool. I think I think I know what that what that is. Very cool. All right. So the, lastly, yeah, let's move on now. The other parts of Asia, obviously, you do focus on the whole region. Um, anything else that you're particularly excited about there? Other economies? We, there's a lot. Obviously, a lot of them we haven't talked about. They're all very diverse, as you have you said. I mean, we spoke about China. China mm. is big. Everybody looks at it. So that's uh, and you can easily buy it in Hong Kong, and their ADRs listed in the US. That's good. Korea and Taiwan are really tech companies. So if you're really right. into tech. And you know your latest gadget, you can go after that. They are the component makers very often, of course, in Korea, mm. massive brands as well. But if you're into that, Taiwanese uh, and Japanese uh, kind of mid-sized tech companies, they make the components very profitable. But if you're looking at something really exciting, a bit of the map, contrarian in a sense, um, that nobody's really talking about, I would go first maybe for Vietnam, mm. but importantly, Bangladesh. Okay. Bangladesh is, nobody looks at it. Most even professional investors haven't really looked at it. There are now funds that do so. It's not easy maybe to buy. There's no ETF, but you can mm. buy actually quite easily Bangladeshi stock. But uh, Bangladesh is going to be something like the seventh or large, seventh, six or seventh largest consumer market by the end of this decade. And mm. nobody's looking at it. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, um, I had somebody asking me, so at the very beginning, we said, hey, Asian markets uh, haven't done as well. But And I said, well, that's because they, they even each other out. But if you look at India, it's done twice as good. It's up 10 mm. times over the last 20 years. So somebody asked me once said, well, if I have to make a suggestion, which, which of you have to make a suggestion, which market could go up 10 times over the next 20 years? Um, that would be Bangladesh. Wow. Okay. Good call. So that's really Vietnam, interesting. Yeah. Of, of the map. Take a look mm -hmm. at that. I most certainly will. Cool. Harold van der Linde, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. Uh, maybe in closing, if you can tell our listeners how they can find out more about you. I don't think you're on any social media. I will link yeah, to the like book. I'm, I'm on, well, I'm on LinkedIn. So okay. um, I'm a, a little bit- Be careful with that because you might get, but yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, no, but um, but uh, uh, I mean, I do regularly post a little bit on LinkedIn for those- Okay. Who, I mean, having actually telling people broadly what happens in markets, I think is a sort of a bit of a duty that we have. So sure. I put posts uh, on there uh, once in a while. And of course, uh, there's the book and uh, they, they can take a look at that. Wonderful. Will do. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for, for being with us today, Ben. Um, and thank you all for listening. And we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time.